Welcome, and thank you for joining the Unbiased Label Podcast, where we believe labels belong on clothes, not people. On this podcast, we have real talk focused on all things fashion and culture with a critical global perspective at the intersection of industry and academia. I'm your host, Zara Karutz, and I launched Unbiased Label after earning my master's in fashion critical studies from Central St. Martins in London. I'm now a PhD fashion studies researcher at Massey University, and I'm obsessed with pushing boundaries by holding deep conversations with meaning. Some people associate fashion with words like vapid or shallow, But really, fashion is a visual and material reflection of society, and it's a complicated system of communication. It shapes belonging, identity, and emotions. On this podcast, we believe fashion holds a lot of power that can create change towards a more equitable world, all while still having fun and being creative. I've been called the woodworking Bernstein of the fashion industry because I do get investigative and dig. At Washington Post training, they taught me how to be a dogged reporter and then a stylistic writer. This episode is a conversation with Dana Thomas, who is a world-renowned fashion author, journalist, podcast host, and leading voice on sustainability. Dana has written for every major publication under the sun, with her work focused on highlighting fashion change makers. Dana is the European Sustainability Editor for British Vogue, and she also hosts the Green Dream podcast on sustainability. In 2007, Dana published the New York Times best-selling book, Deluxe, How Luxury Lost Its Luster. In 2015, she published Gods and Kings, The Rise and Fall of Alexander McQueen and John Galliano. And most recently, in 2019, Dana published Fashionopolis, The Price of Fast Fashion and the Future of Clothes. Dana's intelligent and investigative reporting style comes from her journalism training at the Washington Post, where she wrote from many sections, including the style section under a fashion editor, Nina Hyde, along with former executive editor, Ben Bradley, who would stop by Dana's desk and ask her, what's the news, kiddo? Dana has been called the Woodward and Bernstein of the fashion industry because of her investigative style of reporting. This acclaimed title is referencing the Washington Post reporters Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward, who famously uncovered the Watergate political scandal in the 1970s. I was beyond excited and a complete fangirl speaking with the legend, the icon, Dana Thomas, over Zoom from her home in Paris. We shared stories of working at the Washington Post, talk about her incredible career and body of work, including her podcast as well as her books. And of course, I had to get Dana's thoughts on the current state of fashion. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. 
Now on to the show. So Washington Post girls, I was on the advertising side and I started in the classified section. I landed into the style section after Liz Finos retired for 35 years. So, you know, the Washington Post has such a special place in my heart. Your story is really interesting. You started from the very beginning, from the ground level, pushing the cart. Pushing the cart. So I was in the main newsroom in the post, and I started as a main newsroom copy aide for like a week. Then they decided, okay, she can do more than that. So they put me on the national desk as a news aide. Still, when it was just like the big main newsroom on five, then that summer, after about four months on the national desk, I was still in college when I had that job. And then I went down the steps to style and stayed in style until I moved to Paris. On holiday breaks and things, I filled in for other people. So I worked on the business desk. I worked in the writer's group. I worked on the Virginia desk in the Prince William County Bureau. I worked in weekend magazine, food. I never worked in home, which is funny because I write for Architectural Digest now. And then I wrote for everybody else. Since here, I wrote for foreign. I wrote for the op-ed page. I wrote for everybody. I wrote for any section that would take me. I worked for Newsweek, which was a Washington Post company. I was at the Paris Bureau for a long time and see Mrs. Graham and Ben when they would come to town for the International Herald Tribune board meetings. The Washington Post is not known for its style and its fashion, but at the same time, its coverage has always been award-winning. And I think that almost is an asset when you're thinking of the seriousness and the lens. Everything is done from such a high level. That includes... The style section. And I was at the style section when it was in its most glorious period. We said it was the writer's section of the writer's paper. And Ben loved the style section. He invented the style section. And then he would just like lean on your desk and say, what's the news, kiddo? Tell me what's going on. He loved style. He loved hanging out. He loved the writers. And I worked with some of the best editors and alongside some of the best writers that have ever come through journalism, feature writing. And, you know, David Remnick was the post-bureau chief in Moscow filing these amazing features on Gorbachev when he was from Moscow while I was in style and my stories were running next to those. And Michael Spector was on the national desk, but then writing special speeches on occasion. Lloyd Grove was a style section writer. Kim Masters, who's out in LA now, was a style section writer. And then there was like, you know, Henry Allen and Henry Mitchell and Sarah Booth Conroy, who was this beautiful Southern writer who, when you would walk in in the morning, would say, how are you this morning, Miss?" <laughs> I'm fine. How are you doing this morning? Well, I'm just flourishing, flourishing, flourishing. I'm just flourishing. And that's a mighty fine piece you had in the paper this morning, Miss Tana. Very good. Well done. (laughs) When you got compliments from those writers, you knew you were, you were doing it right, but you had to, you had to measure up. You had to be as good as the giants who are winning Pulitzers, you know, Thomas Jales winning the Pulitzer for television criticism. And and Paul Richards winning it for art criticism, and Guy Forget winning it for architecture criticism. And you had to be as good as them. And so whenever I get in a moment where I, I don't get writer's block so much, but when I'm like, hmm, this is a big thing. How do I tackle this? And I just go rely on my training. And that Washington Post training, they taught me how to be a dogged reporter and then a stylistic writer. If I just fall back on what I know, I know how to do it. I've got it because it's embedded in me from day one. 
Do you find that that's a sense of confidence that has allowed you to springboard into this global world that you cover? Absolutely. It's the best training I could have ever had. When I went to the paper, I also applied to be an intern and I didn't get the internship. And I went and spoke to the number two or three at the paper. And at one point he said, you know, you should think about just going and starting at one of the small papers and working your way up to the Washington Post. Go to the Virginia Pilot. I'm like, no, I'm nice. already at the paper. Why should I yeah. leave and go to the Virginia Pilot? I will never get back in these doors again. I can tell. Yeah. Plus yeah. I'm learning from the best. So I ran into him at Ben's funeral and he's like, you know, you were, you were right to stay on. That funeral was incredible, wasn't it? I flew back just for it. Ben Bradley worked until almost the day he died. And I saw him maybe August and he passed away, what, September, October. And I was doing a photo shoot and he walked by and it was like God was walking by. And just to experience that legacy, I cherish it so much. Washington Post has such a special place in my heart. So it's an honor to talk to you, but it's an honor to connect on such an important part in both of our lives. I think that's really special. Thank you. You have really shaped the industry with your writing, with your reporting. And I didn't know quite how to approach this interview because there's so much work. And I thought we would stick to your three books that are New York Times bestselling. The Deluxe, How Luxury Lost Its Luster. And then your most recent, Fashionopolis, The Practice of Fast Fashion and Future of Clothes. And then there's The Gods and Kings, The Fall and Rise of Alexander McQueen and John Galliano. The three are related in a way. They're a trilogy. It took me a while to figure out what Deluxe was about, but when I figured it out, it, it made sense. It's about how the fashion industry, the luxury fashion industry, sacrificed its integrity for the sake of profit. And it's not just luxury fashion, but I use luxury fashion to talk about a bigger idea. Yeah. But, you know, in a sense, capitalism, sacrifice it's integrity for the sake of profit that, you know, if you could do this for less money and make more profits, even though you were putting out a lesser quality product, you did it and you just hoped that the consumer wouldn't notice. The perfect example was I bought a flexible flyer tricycle for my daughter that was like mine, except that it wasn't like mine at all. It was made of cheaper materials and it tipped over. It wasn't designed properly. It wasn't made properly. Just because you painted it red and white and put the little tassels on the handlebars didn't mean it was the same quality product as the one that was originally made that was a better product. But they were, you know, cutting costs wherever it may be, whether it's a pair of Prada pants and they're using cheaper thread and the seams split apart or, you know, a tricycle that's made with inferior materials and tips over and is dangerous. Those are all this coming from the same place which is that, you know, someone, number crunchers were crunching, saying, let's just rely on marketing to sell our stuff and logos to sell our stuff as opposed to quality. That's yeah. the first book. That first book, to me, is so seminal because you traveled the world, you reported on so many complex issues that one may argue are still relevant today. Completely. These are the same systemic issues that are fundamental to labor practices. Absolutely. You really pulled the veil back on this fashion industry, this, this what, $3 trillion that industry. That goes back to that Washington Post training and reporting. You know, when you grow up in the Washington Post and Woodward's still working in the newsroom, has his investigative department in the back called the SWAT team. 
which is why I never did work. But at one point there was a job opening there and I wondered if I should apply for it. And then I was like, I really like writing features and style. I don't know if I want to really start working on, you know, really dark, dark, because what they often worked on was dark. Yeah. But then I wound up writing dark stuff anyway. But that kind of that having the SWAT team in the back of the newsroom and having the legacy of the Watergate coverage at the newspaper in the newsroom and having Bob walk across the newsroom, it did sort of inform all of us and give us an approach towards journalism that you might not have had at another paper. I've been called the Woodward and Bernstein of the fashion industry because I do get investigative and dig. But that was the culture of the Washington Post in every section of the paper, not just not just in the SWAT team or on national or in you know political coverage. It was everywhere. And you always did get pushed to, to dig a little deeper and find out the real reasons things were going on. But don't you think, Dana, in such a powerful industry like fashion, just from a fiduciary impact on a global scale, that it should be taken this seriously? Absolutely. And that's one of the things that I I learned also working with Nina at the Washington Post. I remember she did a big piece on Christian Lacroix and how he, you know, drove Patu into the ground by jumping to LVMH and this this move that LVMH and Bernard Arnault did by stealing Christian Lacroix overnight from Patu and and opening a new couture house. And then the lawsuit that went and Nina wound up getting all the lawsuit paperwork that was like completely confidential. And she was being an investigative reporter in fashion. Super interesting. And watching her and working with her on this piece, the beauty of working at the Washington Post and working at Newsweek was that none of these companies advertise so we never had to worry about <laughs> losing the advertising by pissing them off. My bureau chief, Chris Dickey, in Newsweek magazine, this legendary former Washington Post reporter, he also pushed me, just go for it, kiddo, because we got nothing to lose. And you can really you know, make the reputation for yourself and also the magazine in this area. Go. You can do it. You're a dogged reporter. Just take, you know, make this a new beat and a new way of covering the fashion industry. As it was growing and becoming a global industry and uh more so than it had been and these were becoming big companies i mean i think the first time i wrote about dior when john galliano joined it it was doing sort of 250 million dollars a year which sounded like a lot and now i think it does 10 billion okay so that shows you how the big difference in you're talking about in gigantic and these were publicly traded companies like you said there's a fiduciary uh responsibility that needed to be met and nobody was thinking about this because most people covering fashion we're writing about hem lengths and heel heights and whatever the new pink is and the new black and, you know, trends and style. And there were also always retail reporters, but that was different. And they covered not just retail of fashion, they covered books a million going under or something, right. you know, like they covered yeah. all retail or, I mean, in Washington, the retail reporter was writing about Heckinger's, Lord Taylor. And, and so, um, you know, I was covering it from that standpoint of the real business angle as this was growing into a global business with global players and you know business leaders bernard arnault now is jockeying every day for the world's richest person with jeff bezos and and elon musk so i was on the right track that yeah you know, this is this is something to be needed to be covered more than like oh look at those pretty clothes and deluxe which is in 2007, you use these terms, luxury refugees and rebels. Yeah. Okay. The luxury refugee, you mentioned Tom Ford at the time. He had, and he had left. Yes. He had left Gucci. the big group and he started his own thing, but he's still a refugee in a sense because he grew his own company organically 
from ground up, making what he wanted. He was making beautiful luxury menswear. Yes, he was selling sunglasses and perfumes and following the business model that worked, but he still did it on his terms. Only recently did he sell his company and cash out. And I was like, well done, sir. Okay, so you, all right. I wondered your opinion on that. Yeah, yeah, great. Good on him. He's got a son. He's recently widowed. I think he's 60 now. We're not far from. So time for the new chapter. I think that's great. You laid the groundwork in Deluxe. When I read that book, you put the onus on the companies rather than consumerism. Absolutely. Do you still feel that way now? Yeah, you do. Okay. Why do you take that stance? Because like any business in a capitalist culture, they're marketing to consumers and just trying to snow you into buying their stuff. Yeah. And they know that they're snowing you into buying their stuff. Some people are making things worthy of what they're selling and they're upright about it. But a lot of them are not telling you the truth. And the fashion industry has so little regulation, hardly any, that they aren't held accountable unless the press does it. That goes back to my education at American University, where we learned about the four estates that the American system is set up. You have the three estates, which is the judicial, the executive, and the legislative. The fourth estate is the press, which keeps these three Mm. in check. They're supposed to keep each other in check, but when it all goes awry, at least there's a fourth estate, the press, to keep them in check. Well, I always learned that, and that was the job of the Washington Post in Washington with covering the judicial, the legislative, and the executive, meaning the White House. But I thought, well, why aren't we doing this in the fashion industry too? Like nobody's watching, you know, there's no checks and balances whatsoever in the fashion industry. So, you know, like in the automobile industry, you have regulations for safety. And then there's the FTC and the airplane industry. You have to meet all these standards and you have to make sure that your workers are working in safe environments and that, you know, things are on the up and up. But in the fashion industry, there's nothing. That's what I do. Why not? Because nobody's taking it seriously. But now there's legislation pending all over the place. You're going to see a big change quickly. Really interesting. See it it coming around. Already there's a lawsuit against H&M for false advertising in the United States. They were claiming that all these things they were making were sustainable when they absolutely positively weren't. And in America, you can't do that. No, you can't. (laughs) So there is, you know, there is some checks and balances, but it was never applied to the fashion industry. Now it's being applied to the fashion industry. Now in France, you can't throw away unsold clothes if you're a retailer, trying to get them to stop over ordering, over supplying and marking down so much and having leftovers, pushing over consumption. They're trying to stop the pushing of overconsumption by making sure that you don't overstock your stores. And that's, that just started. So we'll see what the impact is. I mean, it started like a week ago. So mm. I'm interested to see how that plays out in Germany, they're talking about legislation to say if you're going to import to Germany, your factories have to meet health and safety standards of German factories. Like your workers have to be treated as well as German workers are in Germany, even if you're in Bangladesh or Indonesia. This is a very interesting. I don't know how they would enforce it, but I think it's interesting and could, if they manage to work it out, could be quite radical. And if it works in Germany, just like this other law works in France, it could roll out across the EU and then then you have some impact. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's also, it's tiered or pronged in the way, because it's a complicated issue, you need the regulation, the checks and balances. You need people that are doing work that are focused on the future. 
Right. You tend to spotlight those people, the people that are using the new materials. Change makers, yeah. Yeah, cool. you do. So I do that on my podcast, and I also do it in my third book, Fashionopolis. So I said the three books were a trilogy. The second book, Gods and Kings, while it seems like it's an outlier, really isn't because I realized that it's about the war between art and commerce and how the fashion industry sacrificed the creative side of the business for profit. Again, like, you know, that they hired these artists and they put them into management positions when they had absolutely no management training, worked them to death and they cracked up. Whether it was alcoholism, it was drugs, it was depression, they cracked up. So, you know, now they burn through these kids. There was a story in Women's Wear just yesterday that the longest held job in the fashion industry on the creative side is by this woman you've never heard of who handles menswear at Hermes and she's been there 35 years quietly toiling, making very handsome clothes for men. Hmm. But then after that, there was like one other person that Max Mara that you've never heard of before. And then the other one was Sarah Burton at McQueen, who's been there for 13 years. And that's considered now an impossibly long time in the fashion industry. After that, there was a few that had been 10 years, but most of them was like sort of three, four, five years max. And some of it was one or two years. So it shows that now you're not being hired because you're a great genius. You're just supporting this marketing machine that's selling logo covered stuff to the Asian market. And they don't really need you to be this creative genius anymore. Like when they did need it, when they took these companies global in the 1990s. Globalization and the casualties that globalization gave us. First was integrity. Second was creativity. Third was now Fashionopolis is about humanity and the planet that, you know, we sacrifice the workers, we sacrifice the planet all for profit. Well, in that sense, all three books are a trilogy. If you look at the core thread, it is humanity and the health of humanity and the planets. In that sense. Oh, that's such an interesting tie. You're right about that. My husband says it's a little bit Marxist. We could use a little bit. I mean, <laughs> one of the most interesting and informative books I've read for Fashionopolis is Frederick Engels' Condition of the Working Class in, I guess it was 1850 or 1852-54. And, you know, it was about Manchester's cotton and garment industry then. And, and many of the same horrors that I was witnessing in Bangladesh, all caused by the same system. And I tell you, if you told Frederick Engels and Karl Marx and even Charles Dickens, then when they were writing, you know, Oliver Twist and the Communist Manifesto and all the rest of that, that this would still be going on in 2023, they'd be like, no, 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 it can't be true. 170 years later, it's the same thing. It's just moved to a different place. It's the same thing. It's just moved to a different place. I think that's what I find really fascinating about your approach, especially in the Fashionopolis, is that sort of historic lens, the past, the present, and the future. We were worried about the environment and, and killing the rivers, but those rivers were in England and New England, Boston, 150 years ago. The futurists, the people that are the thought thinkers and the luminaries, what's your prediction of their future? Oh, I think they're all going to be doing great because they're ahead of the curve and they're courageous. They're such courageous people for doing this, you know, without it, any money and just getting yeah. out there. Well, I mean, even my podcast, The Green Dream, it, it takes a lot of courage to go out there and do these things and to start something up. It's a new and different way of doing things. 
And I think they're all really cool and that the scientists have decided to get into the fashion world and try to make it work better and be cleaner and safer. And whether it's lasers to, to distress jeans or it's growing mycelium out of mushrooms for leather handbags or it's um, regenerating cotton t-shirts into virgin cotton again and then so we can use them for blue jeans or something else or taking nylon fishing nets out of the sea and turning them in, you know, regenerating that nylon, recycling it into swimsuits, you know, it's all very cool and, and, and hopeful. I call the third book, Fashionopolis, the book of hope, because mm. I tried to give us, you know, yes, I tell you about some of the bad things that have happened in the history and how there's some still going on, but there's a lot of cool innovation and then there's a lot of hope and there's a lot of goodwill out there for people who really want to change things for the better and they're getting there they're, it's actually happening anyone can also subscribe to the green dream newsletter i've started a newsletter and it goes out it's only twice a month right now but that seems plenty for the moment of course i mentioned the podcast episode but then i talk about all the hopeful things that are happening in the world of climate change and sustainability not just in fashion but in everything and i try to always keep it positive because we have a lot of doom and gloom coverage out there the world is on fire and we're all going to die i mean i can't read another elizabeth colbert piece in the new yorker it's just not possible right <laughs> so i try to do something that's much more positive yeah. here's some good news that you might not have caught in in the deluge of information coming your way so if you're interested the website is the green dream dot studio and there's a little sign up thing you can get the newsletter you can listen to the podcast it's fabulous. Thank you for being a beacon of hope. And hopefully next time I'm in Paris, we can grab coffee. Absolutely. I'll take you to my favorite macrobiotic restaurant. Sounds wonderful. Run by old hippies. It's pretty great. You are the coolest person ever. And <laughs> I love you, Dana Thomas. Thank you so very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Unbiased Label Podcast. If you've enjoyed the show, then please connect with us on social media, tell a friend, and leave a review. Please tune in next time for more conversation on fashion and culture from a critical global perspective at the intersection of industry and academia. Until next time, stay well.